If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 12. A little over a year ago, I flew from Southern California to Nashville, Tennessee, um, and I was flying to Nashville to interview a prospective worship pastor for our open position. This is years ago at a different church. Um, and, uh, and so I went there and I thought, since I'm going to Nashville, I didn't want to surprise Pastor Chris there. Um, since I was going to Nashville, I, I thought I would visit my dad, who lives in the general area. My dad actually lives way, way off the beaten path in a log cabin on the edge of thousands of undeveloped acres of land. It's called the Big South Fork uh, Park. And so um, doesn't get uh, to the store much, doesn't get around much. But I thought that I would drop in and see him. I, I, didn't, I didn't pop in and see him, uh, you know, unannounced. I had left several voicemails. They were unreturned, called him, tried to get a hold of him. So I thought, you know what I'll do? I'm just going to go, go see him. And so in God's good providence, uh, got, got the rental car, drove, drove for a long time, back roads, gravel roads, dirt roads. And then sure enough, as I'm driving up, I see a man <clears throat> with a baseball cap out on a riding lawnmower, and it was my dad. I wanted to see him because we hadn't had much communication, and he had just experienced a near-fatal accident in the factory in which he worked and lost use of his right arm, and, and he doesn't know Jesus. Not a believer, a long-professed uh, atheist, goes back and forth between that and an agnostic, it just means I don't know. And so I wanted to share the gospel with him, so I did. We sat down, we talked for two hours about Christ, and uh, he peppered me with questions, some that I answered well, and some I'm sure I answered poorly. But in the end, made no profession of faith, didn't come to Jesus. He just said, you know, I really, really want to believe, but I just can't. I mean, I would like to get there, but I just can't. And I said, Dad, there, there, there are so many things that, that, that we can't know for, figure out for sure because God is God and we're not. And there are things we have to chalk up to mystery, but we have great reason. Ours is a reasonable faith. Again, trying to circle back to the resurrection, but all of that to no avail. Over the last, well, the last 10 weeks or so, we've been in the book of Acts, and we've looked at the expansion of the early church, and we've seen the work of the risen Christ through His disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen the Spirit bring skeptics and doubters and pagans and idol worshipers and wanderers to saving faith in Jesus. God does this work through His Spirit to bring people, make them alive in Christ, and to bring them to repentance and faith. And, and so I find encouragement in that as I think about even the story with my own father. Uh, one of the things that we've seen repeatedly through this book is how the Holy Spirit pierces through the stubborn resistance of those who want nothing to do with Him. In fact, even those who are opposing Him, and He does the miraculous work, enabling sometimes individuals sometimes entire families to believe, and on some occasions, hundreds and even thousands of people to believe in Christ in a moment. And whenever that happens, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, whenever there is a gospel movement, whenever there, the, the Spirit of God is gaining traction and, and bringing people to saving faith, there is a movement of resistance by the evil one and his minions. The devil is a real person, not some clown bouncing around in a red cape with a pitchfork, but a, a real spiritual being of devastating evil. And when God's gospel is advancing, the devil directs his efforts at stopping that advancement. But the devil's schemes cannot stop God. 
The devil's schemes cannot even slow God down because even the devil is a created being and God is the creator whom Psalm 115 says is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And this morning we're going to see an incredible act of God in the early church. Now, you may, if, you, if you're here every week, you may wonder why we skipped over Acts chapter 11. Acts 11 is basically a recap of chapter 10 as Peter summarizes for the early church what happened. And initially, some people will criticize him, and others then will come along and listen to him. Uh, but by the time he's done telling the story, they celebrate God's work together, and they're called for the first time, they're called Christians. Now let's look at Acts chapter 12 together. Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 5. Here reads the word of the Lord. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, remember that phrase, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So there are three pretty significant transitions, uh, shifts that we see in, the, in Acts chapter 12. The first one is that the, the sermons become directed at mostly uh, Gentiles rather than Jews. Now, not at the expense of the Jewish faith, Jewish believers uh, or, or Jewish people, but the, the sermons are directed toward the Gentiles and uh, we see that, that God brings people from all nations to saving faith. This is kind of, in following redemptive history, this is God turning the page and fulfilling what He said to Abram way back in Genesis 12, that through Abram, through the people of Abram and his descendants, all people would be blessed. All people would be introduced to the living God. A second transition is that the hub of activity for the early church would move to Antioch from Jerusalem. Now, we'll still return to Jerusalem later on in the book, but much of the activity happens either in Antioch or from Antioch. And third, the primary protagonist uh, now becomes Paul. And so Acts 12 through 28 really focus on and feature the Apostle Paul. Uh, Peter will still make an appearance, but uh, much of it will be the ministries and the mission, the mission work the journeys of the Apostle Paul. Now, we'll see all that as we move forward. But in the section that I just read, the expansion of the church has caught the attention of Herod the king. Uh, last week, I mentioned to you there are some names in the Bible that you see all the time, James and Simon, John, Mary for women. Well, Herod was not so much a name, proper name, but actually a title. There are multiple Herods. And this Herod was Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson of King Herod the Great. You may recall Herod the Great, the, the madman who ordered the massacre of all the male children uh, under two uh, in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth as a way to kind of snuff out this newborn king. Herod the Great was an absolute crazy madman. Killed half his family, including one of his nine wives, uh, two of his sons, uh, multiple in-laws. Um, he was not a man to be trifled with. Well, Herod Agrippa I, Herod the Great's grandson, was also pretty diabolical, but he was more savvy in his approach. If you want to think of Herod the Great as a, as a boxer who just sort of would knock out everybody in his path, Herod Agrippa was more of a chess player 
moving the pieces around to gain popularity and acceptance. Uh, by striking up a friendship with a Roman imperial family, Herod Agrippa eventually obtained the kingdom of his grandfather, Herod the Great. And he was, again, he was a real politician, Herod Agrippa. He was a playboy. He was a politician. He learned early in life that he was going to get anywhere. He had to play the political game, and he played it very well. He was very popular with the Jewish leadership. And because they so violently opposed this new movement called the Way, Herod Agrippa then made it his personal agenda to go after the church. This led him to kill James, the brother of John. And this so pleased the Jews. They were so grateful and excited that he killed James that, that he decided, you know what? I'm going to take in their chief apostle, Peter, and I'm going to kill him as well. Have you ever seen the, uh, the 1988 movie? I think it was 88, called The Naked Gun. Leslie Nielsen plays uh, Detective Frank Drebin. And uh, it, there's this hilarious scene toward the end of the movie where they're on the, the search for this killer at a Major League Baseball stadium. I think it's like the, uh, the Angels and the Mariners, as I recall. And they believe the killer is in the audience somewhere. And so Detective Frank Drebin, he ties up the umpire, and he becomes the umpire, puts on the full garb. Well, he's never been an umpire before, so he goes out behind the plate, the, the stadium's filled, and the guy throws the first pitch, and he goes, and there's a long pause, and, uh, and he goes, uh, strike? And the place just goes crazy, right? So he says, oh, i got to do more of this. So, he, so everything's a strike. It doesn't matter where the ball's pitched. You guys are looking at me like you've never seen this movie before, but um, I watched the, the three-minute YouTube clip of the umpire scene, and, and I was literally crying. Um, but he, so he starts moonwalking and dancing and spinning, and the crowd is just going crazy. Well, Herod Agrippa, when he, when he kills James, this violent, gruesome murder, he gains even more popularity. So he says, you know, I'm going to make people even happier with me. And he decides to take in Peter uh, and to execute him. Uh, he surrounds Peter uh, with four squads of soldiers. Verse 4, that's four squads of four soldiers, so 16, um, four of which would shift uh, would trade shifts every three hours in order to make sure that they remained alert. So sometimes we talk about the Apostle Paul and his ministry, and we say he was under house arrest. Not so with Peter. This was what you might consider maximum security prison. There was zero hope for Peter to escape, humanly speaking. But we're told in verse 5 that as Peter was kept in prison, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And that word, earnest prayer, is the Greek word ektenos, and it's used only here in the book of Acts, and it's used another time in the Gospels to describe the way Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22 tells us this about Jesus, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat become like, became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is a prayer of intense anguish. This is a prayer of deep, unsettled emotion. This is a prayer of persistence. And this is the same type of prayer that Peter is described as praying in Acts chapter 12. And really what he does is he gives us, in some ways, a, a model of how we are uh, to pray. This is, from what we know about the festival weeks, and this is the week of the festival uh, Peter's probably in prison for three or four days, and the entire time the church is praying, nonstop, it seems, in shifts, 
Again, modeling for us this sort of desperate, continual, urgent prayer for circumstances that are outside of our control. We have nothing that we can do about uh, but pray. Now, here's the first point I want to make this morning from the text. As God's people, the most significant work we can do against the evils of our day and decisions outside our control is to pray for God's intervention. Notice the early church, they're not in an all-night strategic uh, mission or or strategic planning session. Uh, They're not trying to, to figure this out on their own, trying to take matters into their own hands. They're praying. They're pleading with God to do what only He can do. And if I'm very candid with you, I have to, I have to say that this is hard for me uh, to recognize, to admit that something is so far out of my control, there's nothing I can do. Because when, that, when a problem comes into my life, when a kid, when one of my kids brings me a problem or somebody in church brings a problem, what I want to do is I want to fix it. I want to solve the problem. I want to figure out what is the critical path to alleviate whatever this concern is. And it's easy to believe in this day of achievement that there's actually nothing we can't do if we just put our mind to it. After all, we've created self-driving cars, uh, wireless wearable neck fans. I don't see anybody with one on today. Um, Virtual reality, robot vacuums. We think we can do it all until we get a call like the one I got this week. But the guy on the other end said, my daughter just told me she wants to end her life. She doesn't want to live anymore. She won't get out of bed. And her mom and I, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to fix this. Or like, I, like a call I got a couple of months ago from a young man who just said to me, as soon as I answer the phone, we lost the baby. We lost the baby. With every strained relationship, And every day we can't find happiness. And every time we go to the doctor and the doctor says, I'm trying, but I don't know what to do. Or we read about every, every premature death that we read about. Or our adult child tells us she doesn't really believe the Bible, doesn't really buy into all this stuff. We're confronted day after day with problems we just can't solve. We are sin-cursed people living on a sin-cursed planet, which means that our world is not right. We're not right. We're born at odds with God in desperate need of His salvation. Every single one of us, we've fallen infinitely short of God's standard of perfection. We're born under the curse of sin. Every aspect of our beings have been infected and affected by sin. It's what theologians call the noetic effect of sin. The way that we think, the way that we reason, the way that we believe, the way that we reckon, the way, all of those things have been impacted by sin. We're born separated from the God who made us. We live in a world we can't control. We can't control the actions of our government. We can't control the actions of our children. We can't even control our own actions. And so what do we do? We pray. This is not me saying, by the way, that as Christians, we don't voice our concerns over decisions we disagree with. I'm not saying that there's no place for Christians to write their congressman or congresswoman dispute or debate public policy. I'm not even saying that we should never protest. But what I am saying is the greatest thing we can do is to pray. 
Because God can and does do miracles. He brings about revival. We can't do anything to soften a hard heart. But the Proverbs tell us that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, the highest ranking person in the land. His heart is in the hand of God who directs it like a water course. God is sovereign over all of it. And God makes things happen through the prayers of his people. As a great 19th century Baptist preacher, A.C. Dixon, once wrote, when we depend on organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend on education, we get what education can do. When we depend on man, we get what man can do. But when we depend on prayer, we get what God can do. And often, God surprises us. Look at verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, that means he's about to bring out Peter to be executed, basically. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door, uh, sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So Herod had no doubt heard, had Peter, how Peter had already escaped from one prison experience, and so he's going to make doubly sure this doesn't happen again. So he is, he's literally chained to two soldiers... Now here, to me, I don't know, this may be the most amazing thing of all. We're going to read about a miracle in just a moment. The most amazing thing is he's asleep. He's sleeping. You have anybody in your life, and your family, they, they just can sleep through anything? I mean, aren't they annoying? I mean, that, that just drives me crazy. Like, I, I can't, I'm up many times the night. I can't sleep. I'm always thinking. My mind's constantly racing. Um, here, Peter is, he's chained to two soldiers, trained to kill and he just conked out. He's asleep. It's pretty amazing, really. Uh, the next day, he's going to be dragged out in front of a bloodthirsty mob where he will likely be executed, and still, he's out cold. But his sleep will be interrupted. Look at verses 7 through 11. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord had sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So despite all of Herod's planning and all the security measures that he put in place, an angel of, the God, angel of God appears to Peter, and the text tells us that the angel struck Peter and woke him. Now when we read the angel struck, don't think gentle tap. This is the same word that's used elsewhere and, and, and translated smite. So the angel practically smote him, right? This is like a, this is a shaking, this is a violent action. So the angel comes along and, and, and wakes Peter up. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those situations where you're sleeping and, and one of your kids comes to you, your little cousin comes in the middle of the night and and they poke you, and it doesn't wake you up, so they, like, shake you or slap you or something. I mean, it's a terrifying thing. You know, you look up, you're scared to death. It's very disorienting. Uh, well, such is the case with Peter here. He, he thinks the whole thing is a vision. 
He doesn't believe this is actually really taking place. Uh, but the angel instructs him to get up, get dressed, and follow him, which Peter does. And then everything just automatically opens up for him. The chains, the prison cell, the iron gate, it's all clear sailing for Peter, who has again escaped death. And then Peter realizes, verse 11, this actually is a miracle of God. This is a real thing. This is not a dream. And what does Peter do? He goes to the place, this is so great, I think, where he knows the church is gathered and praying for him. Look at verse 12. When Peter realized this, that is to say, this is a real thing happening, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So they're still praying. Remember, this happens in the middle of the night, probably in the early morning. It's probably like one or two in the morning, and the church is still there praying together. Many are gathered together. They're praying. They're pleading with God. Now, this leads to one of the more humorous scenes uh, in the Bible, verses 13 and following. And when he knocked, Peter knocked at the door of the gateway. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to, him, to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. That just means there was a great disturbance. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So Peter's on the run. He's escaped prison under maximum security, and he knows that he is a sought-after man who will soon be killed if he's apprehended. He goes to the place where the church is meeting. He knocks on the door, and here comes Rhoda. Rhoda comes up. She, sees, she hears it's Peter. She recognizes the voice, but she doesn't open the door. And so she goes back and tells everybody. Peter is there thinking, are you serious right now? Like, I've got people who are trying to kill me. Let's celebrate when I get inside in safety. But no, she goes, she tells everybody, and how do they respond? They say, you're out of your mind. Nobody escapes from the sort of accommodations that Peter was in. But Rhoda insists, I, I know it, I know his voice. They say, we'd sooner believe that, they're, that it's Peter's guardian angel out there than Peter himself, which was kind of a first century uh, tradition. But finally, they go out there, they see it's Peter, and what does Luke tell us? They're amazed. Now, do you see the irony here? They've been praying pretty much nonstop. You can even say round the clock for Peter. And when God answers the prayer, they're amazed. They don't even believe it. Now, there are two points I'm going to make here in fairly rapid succession. Um, and here's, the, here's, the, here's our second point. Even the early Christians who had witnessed incredible miracles struggled to pray in faith. And I, I have to tell you, there's some encouragement in that to me. We're not the only Christians who struggle to pray in faith. Those who are closest to the action struggle to pray in faith. 
when I read about some of the great men and women uh, in Christian history and in the scriptures and, and, and their devotion to prayer, it sometimes is frankly discouraging to me. Uh, when I read William Wilberforce, who became a Christian in 1785 and immediately went to work on uh, fighting for the end of slavery in England, praying for hours at a time, five, six hours at a time, that's discouraging. I, I can't do that. I, I don't have that sort of attention span. I can't focus that long. Although I did recently read an article that said, don't despise the distractions and rabbit trails that you have when you're praying. God wants to hear what's most pressing on your heart and mind. So that was encouraging to me. But when I read about the reformer Martin Luther praying for four hours at a time, or I read about the Puritan Thomas Boston, who would set aside an entire day Monday, along with his other prayer life, he'd pray from, from sunup to sundown on Monday. I just think, there's, I can't do that. I cannot stay focused that long. And so that can be discouraging. But then we see in the scriptures over and over how God's ordinary people, the people God uses, struggling to pray in faith. And the beautiful news is, even despite our weak faith and our short attention spans, God answers prayers. And that's because the answers to our prayers are not based on our faithfulness or our strength, as some of the teachers of the health and wealth gospel would have us believe. The answers to our prayers are rooted in the love that God has for His children. God doesn't answer our prayers because we're so great and we pray so long. He answers our prayers because He is so loving and kind and merciful. Our prayers are answered based on a relationship, a relationship that is ours in Jesus Christ. I mentioned a few moments ago that we are sinners on a sin-cursed planet. Well, God sent His Son to buy us back to Himself. Peter says in one of his own letters, God sent His Son to bring us to Himself. When Jesus died on the cross, He took the punishment of God on Himself for those who believe. He died for all of our sins, even our prayerlessness. Jesus prayed perfectly so that His prayer record could be ours by trusting in Him for salvation. Through faith, we are made right with God. Through faith, by believing in Jesus, we have complete access to God. We belong to Him, and He delights in hearing from us, and He delights in answering our prayers. And that brings us to our third point this morning, which is this. God answers the prayers of His children, often in ways we never imagined or dreamed possible. He answers the prayers of His children in ways we, we sometimes don't even dream about. Uh, the New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall makes a good point. He says that this, new, this church that was gathered there that Peter came to, um, they probably weren't praying for Peter's release. They were probably praying that God would strengthen Peter, that he would deepen his faith. They may, may have been praying that, that, that Peter would receive a lesser sentence, but they probably weren't praying for his release. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been so astounded and in such disbelief when Peter showed up to them. But God actually had something in better, better in mind than they even were praying for. What God had in mind was to free Peter and to continue to use him on mission for the kingdom. This was beyond what the church had probably even considered as a possible outcome. And this is what God does, doesn't He? 
He answers our prayers in ways we never expected and in ways that are far better than we even thought possible. We ask for financial help because things are rough and not going well, and God sometimes gives us the exact amount that we need. As one person shared with me uh, this week by text, had a situation, financial crunch, a difficulty, and God provided the exact number that he and his family needed. And that way, he sees that God loves him and cares for him, but he continues to trust on God in the future. Sometimes we pray for some of the relationships. We just, we just want to be able to get along with people. Just help me get along with this person. And God surprises us. And he brings to, in a miraculous way, not just the restoral the, the, of a relationship, but you find a deepening friendship and an intimacy and a mutual love and respect that you didn't even think was possible. Sometimes we pray for a particular job and we think, this has got to be the job that I get. This has to be what God does. And we don't get that job. But we get another job that is far better for us in which we can use our gifts and employ our passions. We pray for things, but we don't realize that God actually knows what we want and what we need better than we do. And sometimes we think, no, this has to be the specific answer. And yet God has something even far better. I told you about my dad. I've shared multiple times about my stepdad. Unbeliever. Very much against the things of faith. Very much against any sort of spiritual discussion. My mom prayed for 38 years. What she wanted was to him to, be, to come to Christ immediately. After 38 years, comes to faith in Christ. And then just starts growing spiritually incredibly. And then they, their marriage is strengthened to a place that she never even dreamed would happen. God answers in ways we never expected. Now, let me close this out by summarizing the next section, which is actually an illustration of my final point. So unrelated to Peter, uh, Herod gets angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. It was related to some sort of embargo, a, a tax that um, was basically causing a food shortage and was costing Herod money. And so Herod, he, he's hot over it. And Herod meets with the people in his, perfect, in his purple uh, regalia, and, this, and he delivers this beautiful speech. And the people say, this is the voice of a God, not the voice of a man. And Herod apparently nodded approvingly. Now look at verses 23 and 24. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And then maybe the central verse of this whole chapter. But the word of God increased. And multiplied. There are all kinds of speculation as to what exactly this meant, the angels striking him down and being consumed by worms. Uh, Josephus, who was an early historian, uh, said that what happened was that the death was really more of a prolonged four or five day thing, uh, characterized by a painful stomach condition, uh, which what, what we might call actually tapeworms. The striking down that the angel did did not cause him to die in a second, but over a period of time. Again, we don't really know. We don't know if it was tapeworms. We're not told that. Um, but here's what we do know. The one who tried to eliminate the church of Jesus Christ was himself eliminated. The one who dared to rail against and plot and scheme against the church of Jesus Christ was himself eliminated eradicated. 
Now, do we think for a second that those early believers were praying that Herod would be eaten by worms? I don't think so. Do we even think they were praying that Herod would die? I doubt it. But God had something so much better in mind, so much more glorious, so much more powerful than they had ever dreamed. Verse 24 tells us, in all this, the word of God increased and multiplied. And what that means is no matter who's against us, no matter who schemes against the living God, no matter who's in government office, no matter who's mocking the Christian faith, the Word of God will continue to increase and multiply. And there is no one nor any group of people who can slow down the divine-oriented progress of the kingdom of God. There's nobody who can stop what God decides He will do. And here's where, again, circling back to my opening uh, illustration... This is where we find great comfort, I think, as praying believers. God will work in such a way that He will bring those He chooses to brokenness, repentance, and faith. And He will do that through the prayers of His people. So if you have a friend who is rebelling against God, maybe he or she has gone their own way. Maybe you have a a child, an adult child wants nothing to do with the faith, maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, and that person is just, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. They have no chance against God as His Spirit works through our prayers. Now, this is not, I'm not guaranteeing that God's going to save everyone. Of course not. But God will bring the most unexpected people to Himself and repentance, and faith, and His work of salvation, as we're going to see through the rest of this book, it cannot be stopped. For those who attempt to steal God's glory, which is all those who reject Jesus as King, their fate will be as painful and spectacular as the death of Herod. But for all who turn in faith to Jesus, all who believe on the one that God has sent, they will be reconciled totally forgiven of every sin, cleansed, made new, and brought into the family of God. And for those who continue in prayer, as I hope we are doing as a church, for those who are unbelievers, even as we continue with just a little faith, trusting in the risen Christ, we will see God do great things. He may not answer our prayers exactly the way we want, but in God's wisdom, we will see answers that are far better than anything we ever imagined because the answers will come from, come from the mind of, so to speak, an infinitely wise God whose ways are higher than our ways and whose judgments are purer than our judgments. He is doing a work through the prayers of His people, even fickle, up and down, unfaithful people like us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to pray this morning for everyone in this room who has a friend or a parent or a child or a spouse or a neighbor who doesn't know you through Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to pray that you would encourage them. I want to pray that you would strengthen them. I want to pray that you would embolden them in their conversations, that you would energize them in their prayers. And I want to pray for the the, the folks that we're all praying for separately, those unbelievers in our respective circles, Father. I want to pray that you would do a work 
of salvation. I want to pray that you would bring about repentance and faith for the hard-hearted, for the skeptic, for the cynic, for the wanderer, for the rebel, for the, for the idol worshiper, for the, the devotee of another religion. Whatever their situation is, Father, I want to pray that you would bring them to saving faith. And as we go down, and we, we, we have great sorrow as we see the people we love who do not come to you, and we experience sorrow in our own lives as we walk on this uneven planet. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen us with a reminder of your faithfulness on this path of sorrow. Strengthen us in faith in you. Increase our joy in you. Enable us to persevere with great patience. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.